How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Today, our guest is Randy Brandoff, who is probably not always not accustomed to being referred to as brother of VFA fellow Evan Brandoff, because he's the older brother, and that is one of the rights you get with being an older brother. You, people refer to as your brother. But Randy is uh, an accomplished entrepreneur. He was the first hire of Marquee Jet, a firm which makes which made private flight available on a membership basis. Randy spent 11 years at Marquee Jet, leading its marketing during a time in which it was purchased by Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, the Berkshire Hathaway-owned NetJets. While at Marquee Jet, Randy was also a principal at Avion Tequila, and quite an interesting and amazing story, helping to launch this now very well-established brand. Since leaving NetJets, Randy has launched 11 James, an annual private membership program for watch enthusiasts, which has been des- described as the Netflix of watches, only Netflix is a few bucks a month, and 11, J- 11 James starts at $149 per month and increases to $1,259 per month. But instead of watching, say, reruns of, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy or something like that on Netflix, you're getting yourself a very, very nice watch. You can get yourself up to a $40,000 watch on your wrist. Um, 11 James has captured the attention of the venture community. Randy's firm has raised over $9 million. We look forward to learning all about how uh, Randy Brandoff built 11 James. A word about our podcast. This podcast is produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize American cities. Fellows like, like I said, Randy's brother, Evan. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. And please, if you're enjoying the show, if you listen to it regularly, take five minutes, like us on iTunes, and make sure you're subscribing to us on iTunes as well. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald. And before we start, i got to ask you, if you need a website, why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 77 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website. With hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from, the drag-and-drop editor, there's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. Too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy to build a website for your own business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. The result is stunning. And now, here is our interview with Randy Randolph of 11 James. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. 
Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Randy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited. So, I mean, I, I'm excited about talking about 11 James, but there's a whole backstory. Um, it seems like the insight from 11 James came from Marquee Jet, and, and which, which became part of NetJets. Um, let's start with, with, uh, with Marquee Jet. How, how did you become employee number one of, of Marquee Jet? Absolutely. So, after brief stints in management consulting, uh, after a two-year stint at Deloitte Consulting, uh, my friends in finance, because the late 90s, seemed to be having far more fun. So I talked myself into a boutique venture capital firm here in New York City called the Argentum Group. Uh, my hiring was clearly the leading indicator the bubble was going to burst, and it burst basically <laughs> the week I got there. And I spent the next year um, watching the world implode and the venture market all but shut down. And at the end of a year, the partners were fantastic, and they said... Randy, you're great. You know, keep your desk as long as you want, but you learn in this industry by doing deals. And our reading in the tea leaves is there won't be deals for years to come. And so don't waste your time not learning. Figure out something else to do. And I fortuitously was introduced to these four entrepreneurs with amazing track records who now had a handshake from Warren Buffett and NetJets to launch a private jet card business leveraging the NetJets multi-billion dollar infrastructure. And we hit it off right away. And next thing you knew, I was employee one at what we soon named Marquee Jet. And and you started you started marketing there, and <clears throat> it was a career that 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 lasted I think about eleven years. Maybe that's where eleven James come from. I don't know. We can talk about that too. No, uh, no just that's total not coincidence. <laughs> right. total, total coincidence. coincidence. Okay, uh, and. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I, I'm like, I'm curious. You, you started in you started in marketing. Your degrees in finance and marketing, but um, you know, you didn't have any professional background in marketing. Although I did notice on your LinkedIn page, there's a reference to some obscure publication you had about agricultural marketing or something like that. So maybe maybe your academic agricultural marketing uh, degree uh, or, or thesis uh, prepared you for uh, for jet marketing. <laughs> uh, so was it a surprise to you that you ended up building a career in the in the area of marketing? It did. I mean, I would say fundamentally, I've always been a jack of all trades, master of none type. So now, finally, as a founder and CEO, I, I'm, I'm actually, I think, at the job, I, I've arrived at the job I've meant to be in, where I, having some aptitude in a lot of areas is, is actually very helpful. Um, at the time, on the trajectory, you know, the first year at, at Marquee Jet, I was in the office of the CEO wearing every conceivable hat. Um, and then we'd brought on a gentleman, Ken Austin, who was originally Marquis CMO and then our president. And Ken basically came on and said, I'm starting the marketing and business development department. That's going to be where all the action is. Do you want to do it with me? And he was an unbelievable mentor. And fundamentally, I always had an aptitude for it. You know, I sit there, you know, from a very young age, I was the one who remembered the jingles and the slogans and the taglines. It just always struck me and I was always interested by it. So I took to it very naturally. And so Marquis Jet has this like phenomenal run and and uh, and is ultimately acquired by by Berkshire Hathaway, by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, of course. Like, what what lessons you know, what lessons you, do you learn along the way? Um, you know, what do you take with you when you start 11 James from, from Marquis Jet and, and NetJets? We don't probably have enough time to go into all of them, <laughs> but, but some highlights include, and this applies to so many levels of life, believe that you can do it. It starts with a vision, 
a vision for what you want to achieve, a belief you can achieve it, a tactical plan that's doable, and then execution. And really, you know, you hear so many would-be entrepreneurs talk about an idea that they can see themselves, but somehow they get stopped short of actually going and doing. And from the whole company itself to different ventures, partnerships, different product launches, you name it, we always just knew we could. And, and thus we, and we made it so. Um, and that's applied you know, later on at Avion, which I'm sure we'll touch on, and again at 11 James. It's just taking ideas and implementing them starts with a belief and, and a willingness and a steadfastness to go and execute. Um, other pieces include you know, when you're doing consumer luxury, treat your customers like gold. You know, not the blind, the customer is always right. You know, they're not. But treat your customers, put your customers on a pedestal. And one of the great things culturally I learned was also, by and large, put your employees on a pedestal. If you expect them to treat your customers like gold, then they should understand what it feels like to be treated as such. So you're VP at Marquee Jet, Senior VP, Executive Vice President, Chief Marketing Officer. Yeah, it's a really great trajectory. You know, I'm just I'm curious, like, but you also have obviously have this, you know, entrepreneurial bent via the firm you're at now, Eleven James and Avion. Um, but were you was there like a push pull? Were you like, this thing is is awesome and this is going places and it's a lot of fun, you know, being here at, at Marquee Jet. But I have all these other ideas, or was it kind of like were you were you thinking about other ventures and just constantly waiting for the right time to, to jump, or, or, or were you just locked into what you were doing? The at the time, you know, the first couple of years, first six years, you know, Marquee Jet had a hockey stick growth. You know, we were literally just growing tremendously year after year in a very fun space. Private aviation is a very exciting, fun space. And fortuitously, and it's weird to say this in this context, you know, 9-11 happened shortly after we launched Marquee Jet. And all of the FAA, all of the changes, how hard it is now, even still today mm. to go through an airport, were very new and very impactful. And so a lot of folks of means were looking for an alternative to flying commercially. And that was really the wind at our sails, plus an economy that was tra- tra- trending in the right way, that Marquis just had an amazing run. And so for a handful of years, it was just hanging on, not, not for dear life, we were out in front, we were doing it, and we wanted to have that run, but there was no time to breathe or look around or think of being anywhere else. We were exactly where you wanted to be. Um, then all of a sudden in the downturn, uh, after triaging our business, we decided that we were going to start a spirit. And next thing you know, I went headlong into you know, putting all the pieces together, working with Ken Austin and others to launch Avion Tequila. Um, then all of a sudden, NetJets came and bought Marquee, and I was asked to be CMO of the combined entity. And I jumped headfirst into that. So really, it was an 11-year run, but it happened in a blur. There wasn't a whole lot of time to, to ever be bored, let alone to think about what else I'd want to be doing. You know, Everything I was doing seemed like the right place to be at the time. So let's let's talk about Avion, um, which I'm, I'm assuming was named for you know as a, as a bit of a pun to go along with. Uh, we were the jet guys, we were the flight yes. guys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Avion Tequila. Like, I mean, when I mean, you told me a little bit before we started recording about how how it came to be, but I mean, were you, were you tell us how it came to be? But also, you know, were you were you thinking like this is crazy? We're like, okay, you know, we can we can we can start a, a, a premium tequila business. Why not? Well, there's a lot of logic to it. So to give it in full context, Marquis having hockey stick growth on the heels of an economy growing at a similar pace. All of a sudden, you know, the world was ending, you know, folks are appearing, the, the auto trio appears before Congress and gets slapped for taking their own private jets there and private jets become a bad name and business was bad. 
And we realized that until the economy recovered, none of us had the marketing prowess to to get it back until until you know people felt normal again. And Ken Ken Austin had come from Seagram's, and he was had beverage experience, and he said we should consider starting a spirit. You need entrepreneurial know how, marketing acumen, and a really good Rolodex. And if there's any three things we had at Marquee, it was that. And then when we looked around. You had a few factors at play. You had tequila being one of the fastest growing categories. And then you had a real market anomaly. Name any other spirit, especially at the ultra premium level. And there's a handful, at least three, if not a handful of brands that are relevant. So, you know, a Glenlivet and a McAllen, you name it, in Scotch. Now bourbon's hot. Back then it really wasn't. In vodka, there's, there's Grey Goose, there's Kettle, there's multiple. Whereas in ultra premium tequila, Patron was 11 times, <clears throat> 11 times bigger than its nearest competitor. And that kind of an anomaly was an enormous vacuum, and its nearest competitor was a well-established brand that would have find it very hard to close that move gap. Up scale, move up scale would be tough for it. Is exactly. That, yeah. So another unique thing about launching Avion was it was one of the first, it was one of, maybe the only business I'll ever be a part of where we launched setting out to be number two. You know, <laughs> not to dominate, but to just <laughs> fill a gap and be a viable number two. That's a great lesson. I'm going to put that in the back of my head. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm actually presenting to the to the VFA class the next couple of weeks, I think. And, and I keep thinking about lessons from the podcast. And that, that's like a, that's the first time I heard that, and it's actually really interesting. Yeah. Setting out to be number two. And and did you get there? Did you did you guys end up making it? Uh... We have. Now I haven't been in the business. You know, since Alt Netchets came and bought Marquee, and I became CMO of the combined Marquee Netchets. I gave up any operating role in Avion. I just became among, if not its biggest fan. Um, but yes, I believe Avion is currently the number two ultra premium tequila. That's incredible. That's a crazy story. The when when NetJets bought Marquis, so you guys, you guys had a relationship from the beginning, I guess. Right. Um, was it bittersweet, sweet? What was what was the experience being bought by a by a Buffett company? Although, like, had you, had you guys rebounded from the doldrums of the in the economy? We had. I mean, it was. Th- I mean, it's certainly as you're, you know, you're noticing. We didn't talk about it. It's certainly a really nice and affirming checkmark, uh, you know, in history to be purchased by a Berkshire company, um, and my opportunity at NetJets was phenomenal. Um, but would it, you know, before the downturn, you know, were valuations and everything a little healthier? Would it, you know, would it have right. been sweeter two years earlier? A little bit sweeter, but it was still terrific. How do you so? How do you walk away from a from a Buffett owned company and you know from there's got to be a lot of prestige associated with that and and you know did people think that you were crazy to to walk away and start your own thing? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> healthily. Um, I had a great story with my aunt who I, I care about deeply. When in an, there was a I had left Netshits in December and in January 13 was a family affair. And at the cocktail hour, my aunt came over and gave me a big kiss on the lips, Godfather style. And I was like, thank you. She's like, Randy, congratulations. I was like, thank you. But I needed her to elaborate. Like, what's going on? She's like, I remember when you told me you were selling private planes. And I thought that was silly. And you guys killed it. And I remember when you told me you were making tequila. And I thought that was crazy. And you guys killed it. Now you're doing some sort of watch thing. It's ridiculous. So God only knows how good you're going to (laughs) do. So... There's a lot of that. But in reality, I wasn't going away from something. I was going towards something. I had had an idea in the back of my head for eight plus years that had become a very loud voice. And I had a front row seat to the rise of luxury collaborative models. Basically, 
any luxury asset class that a generation ago needed to be owned to be enjoyed, you know, from private jets to vacation homes to classic cars to handbags to dresses and now so much more, had, whether it was a fractional model, a membership model, or some other name, an alternative that prioritized variety, service, and access over ownership. And it was consistent with macro trends, millennials' way of luxury consumption, you name it. And I was a watch lover, surrounded by 10,000 affluent clients who almost universally loved watches. And I tried to keep up. I was a variety junkie. I tried every year I was buying another one. And I quickly looked down and realized that my thirst for variety far exceeded my means or desire to have an endless collection. And there had to be a better way. And once I realized that I had a very unique skill set and passion to go and make that so, every day that I wasn't going and actively in pursuit of making that so felt a little bit like a wasted day. So I ultimately went to my wife and who's my partner and everything. And, you know, the reason I'm able to do or achieve anything I'm able to achieve. And I said, here's the idea. I really believe I can achieve it. Um, the bet is that I've, you know, I'm able to be successful in a job like I have right now. And if this is a failure, I'll be able to go and get a similar type of job in the future. But for now, I think it's a really big idea and I believe in it. And if I don't try, I'm always going to regret not trying. And she wanted the record to reflect that she was behind me. I was just saying, and she said, don't do it. Um, she, she said... I'm anxious, but I let the record show I support you. And she's been unbelievable. Because as you know, you know, as an entrepreneur yourself, you know, along this time frame, we had one little one at home and now we have two. And so I've had multiple startups the last few years. Right. I've got, I've got, I've got two myself. And yeah. I, I, you know, before I got married, I, I said to my wife, who I've been dating for about a, year, a little over a year when we got married, I sat her down and I said, I said, you know, just so you know, it, like... Things are fine right now, but entrepreneurship is just inherently risky. And I just want to make sure you know what you're signing on for. There could be some very tough times down the road, and we're fortunate that there haven't been. Um, but it, I, I'm, you know, it's 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 interesting that, that you had that conversation to me, and like like, you know, because I'm I, I don't know that many entrepreneurs actually, to be honest, who have had that. Maybe I maybe I haven't asked them about it, but who who've, who've had that conversation. I'm I'm curious. Like, did you feel like I sort of I sort of felt like when I told my wife about it, I sort of felt like she was she's like. Okay, I get it. And I was like, "Are you just being supportive, or do you really get this?" Like, and I think she got it. But I mean, did, how? I don't know how heartfelt was that the conversation, idea or the or the need. got the risk. Like, I think she got the risk. Like, this is this is you know, well, the, this is what could happen. Assuming you know, my wife's a professional sour. organizer. Okay, so she's a planner by nature. Like, fundamentally, she chose to start her own organizing business because she's more organized than anyone she knows, and she's really good at helping others be organized. So the notion of entrepreneurship, of taking a leap without a net and of not being able to provide any sort of window of what six months or a year or five years later looks like is certainly not her default natural position. Mm. Um, so it was hard for her. But she had, you know, she had watched the success that of Marquis and, and the success of Avion. So and she knew that, you know, I have certain skills and, you know, I'm, I'm willing to work endlessly to achieve what I want, what I set out for. And so she ultimately put faith in that and faith in me um, with some safe guardrails that if we don't achieve certain milestones in certain time frames, we have to have a different conversation. Right. That's very interesting. The, um, you know, so you said, like, I think you said, you know, it had been several years that this idea had been had been gnawing at you. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in particular that, that, that 
pushed you over the edge. It was like, I can't take it anymore. I, I've seen this or someone else. I hear there's a competitor. Was, was there something that, some, some moment that was like, this is just, it's got to be now? Um, in reality, probably not. I think it was more just the passage, you know, you know, annual you know, budget cycles and things of that nature. And NetJets especially, it was a lot of budget and planning and year end and then calendar flips over and it's the next year. And it just felt for me as one year was coming to an end that I was either signing up for another year or it was the right time to go. And so it just seemed very clean to end at the end of 2012 and to set out anew with a fresh start in 2013. Were you laying the groundwork while you were still at NetJets? Like, did you have a lot of progress so you could hit the ground running? Or was it just clean break, last day, you know, everyone throws you a party, walk out and start, um, you know, start 11 James the next day? The groundwork, the biggest groundwork was I had the perfect Petri dish to socialize the idea. And I had socialized it for eight years between fellow colleagues, sales guys, marketing guys, our clients, meeting them at all sorts of great events that we were throwing. You know, everyone, near everyone had a beautiful watch on and was always welcome to engage you in the conversation of how many they had, what they like, how often they switch, things of that nature. So it was never, hey, would you be a part of a business like this? It was more just understanding consumption habits. Um... You know, that job, CMO of NetJets, was a fairly all-consuming position. So it's not like I was able to do a lot of work on the side, but it was able, it was able probably to do a lot of thought, you know, as your head hit the pillow every night for a number of months. And then, you know, organize my thoughts so then once I was out of NetJets, I was ready to really get going. What does day one look like at, at 11 James? Um, you know, what, what, do you, what do you need to launch 11 James? I mean, year one, 2013 involved, you know, first you have to build the financial model and the, and the deck so you can go and get some seed capital that takes talent either that's joining the team or engaged in some sort of short-term basis. Um, you need to visualize and understand the product and then set in motion building at least a beta test of the product. Um, you got to figure out where you're going to work because in short order, you know, I realized that being at home with a wife and small child was uh, not conducive. I was either it was conducive to being a good husband and father, but not really conducive to, to setting out on this path. Um, so it was a lot of things. You can't solve any one thing per day. You're solving 10, you know, every, each and every day. Um, but ultimately, we got our ducks in a row. We raised a few million dollars of seed capital. We had a great core team, and we were able to officially launch in January of 14. And, and there was there was a core team there from day one. It was it wasn't just you. You were you were you were, soon after you were hiring people and, and getting people on board. Yeah, by May June we had our first hires. Were you bootstrapping to start, or did you have some funding from from day one? Uh, I bootstrapped and then brought in funding. So, actually, so I, I, stop I, I have a bit real commitment in the business. Yeah. I got I got I got to stop here and actually ask you. So so where does the 11 James name come from? Aside from my 11 coincidence, where does it not come from? Uh, there was a million years ago at an Shits event. I heard a story that on the set of Bond films, I think Sean Connery, Sean Connery in the set of a Bond film, they used to present <laughs> I like him this already. with the 11 different watches and gadgets they had for that movie. And <clears throat> in my head James Bond was a prototypical member and what was Bond about? It was about the hot car, the hot girl, and the hot timepiece. <laughs> and so to me, the choice of 11 watches was directionally what we were doing, 11 James. So you're giving a complimentary, uh, complimentary uh, selection of watches to whoever is, uh, whoever's playing the Bond. Uh, well, oh, my God. I can't, believe, I can't remember his name right now. Um, thank you. Daniel Craig. Is he, but he's is he on his way out, if you hear out. the rumors. <laughs> uh, I vote for Idris Elba, but I don't think it'll be him. 
Oh, that'd be fun, actually. I like him a lot. From uh, from The Wire, right? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Fantastic on The Wire. Um, you So you raised this, this, this $2.3 million round after about a year. What is what is what does that allow? What does two point three million dollars allow you to do? What, what was the use? What was the intended use of funds? So, basically, half went to inventory, half was operating capital. Um, you know, ultimately, this is a business that you know is not asset light. We need watches. You know, we have to own a decent percent of those watches. So there was always a path that I'd raise equity for operations and debt for inventory. Um, I underestimated probably profoundly how hard it is to put debt on an unproven startup and business model. Um, so the biggest, I'd say, limitation to our growth, and our growth has still been triple digits every year, um, has been we've had to put some form of governor on it to make sure we had the we were able to keep up with the match supply with demand. Um, now that we have years of operating history behind us, um, real strength, a great you know, great team, great product, great membership, we now are in conversations to really get access to the capital that would allow us to take the governor off. So I mean, could, yeah, so you can, you would be able to raise debt against against those assets. You're saying, yes. In, in, okay, yeah, that's. I was I was wondering about that as well. It's not that the asset the assets are lent against. There are businesses that lend against watches and jewelry all day long. Right. It's the the guarantor, the company behind it, having, you know, not big EBITDA margins or not any real operating history. It's the guarantor that was hard to get the lender's head around. Right. Got it. That's interesting. Um, so, I mean, to me, it's like at the it's like Eleven James is, is a bit of a paradox in that, you know, you've got a, a seemingly young staff, at least those who are connected to you on LinkedIn that say they're Eleven James seem like they're quite young. Um, you've got, you know, uh, some angel and venture, you know, VC funding. Um, this elegant website, this association with the James Bond uh, brand in some way, or desired association. Do you do you? But it, with a young team, I mean, is it is it is that just front of the house? Is there a back of the house where it's ping pong tables and sneakers and um, I don't know, you know, that that type of that type of typical VC backed startup environment? It's both. Um, it's. And I also I learned this, you know, the work hard, play hard mentality was Ken, Ken Dichter, Ken Austin, Jesse Itzler, like the marquee guys really instilled that in me that, you know, when you're, you know, Danny Meyer has been a big influence in me. When you're in the restaurant, when you're, you know, when you're in front of customers, there's a certain amount of decorum and a certain, you know, right way you want to be. But behind in the proverbial kitchen, you know. You know, if the work's as long as the work's getting done, you you should enjoy it. You should want to come to work. You should want to have fun with the folks that you're getting it done with. So we don't quite have the ping pong table, but you know, there's it's a collegial atmosphere. We you know, there's happy hours quite often. We order in food. You know, we have bagels and brands on Friday where we talk about a different watch brand over breakfast. You know, there's a lot of fun things to go around, and it's but it is interesting how there's you know a handful of us, the adult supervision who are plus or minus forty years old, <laughs> and then you have everyone else in their twenties. And I'm a huge movie and TV. I, I make references all day, every day, and. 80% of the time, people look at me, and I'm like, you don't get that one? Really? How did you not see that movie? And I've, decided, I've, I've, I've come to make references less often because I'm just aging myself. 
like a good uh, a good like Three Amigos re- reference or something like that that like no one in your right. office is going to get all these iconic you, 80s movies you grew up like, really in the 80s no one <laughs> yeah. Police Academy no one yes yeah, yeah no, I'm, I think I'm, I'm basically playing the same role in my office right. it's, I've just yeah, you just got to stop doing it because so, <laughs> people are just going to keep looking askance at you so so what you're basically saying is your company cleans up well you guys you guys can you know you guys can walk around in in, uh, in sneakers and stuff like that but obviously for a for a client facing event it's like boom you know you're, you're out there and you're and you're, you're on you're on you're on you're on but I mean is there is there a like because the the website is elegant and you know it's dark colors and I encourage everyone to go check it out elevenjames.com um Thank you. uh you know the um you know is there is there is there a, a prescribed formality to the to the you know to a customer service call or something like that is there an education internally around how people have to react to you know a, a higher end clientele I'd say yes, but in that there should be an appropriate, you know, there. All clients in any sort of luxury product should be handled with an appropriate amount of respect. And formality is the wrong word, but just the right decorum per se. But on the flip side, we're not curing disease. This is watches. It's fun. So you inspire, you know, it's all infused with a healthy amount of fun. So we have an amazing concierge team or member services team. You know, they're emailing, they're texting, they're speaking to our members, meeting with them all day, every day. Same with our sales team. And it's about respect. It's about being, you know, prompt and courteous and answering all of their questions. But we can't take ourselves or our product too seriously. It's about fun. You wear a watch, you know, for emotional connection. It's not that you have a phone that's telling time as well or better. You're wearing a watch because it's an amazing piece of art on your wrist. It has history and heritage and beauty. Um, it, 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 you know, a lot of people like all the different things that it signals about your sense of style and status and achievement. Um, but at the end of the day, we can't take ourselves too seriously. Too seriously, so it's not a formality, it's more just you know an appropriate level of decorum. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Talking to Randy Brandoff here, and um, Randy, close to my heart, is you know he started off bootstrapping his company. He ultimately went on to get some venture back funding. Um, when you're starting a company, you definitely want to keep your costs low. And everyone knows that entrepreneurs and small businesses need a good website to get their business off the ground. And um, if you're trying to keep your costs low, you should know that millions of entrepreneurs created have created their own professional websites using. Wix.com, and the results are stunning. Wix gives you access to hundreds of customizable templates and easy drag-and-drop tools. You can get up and running today. Don't add a code? No problem. There's no coding needed. You can go to Wix.com today and sign up for an entirely free account. Like I said, free. You're a bootstrapper. You want to keep it, uh, keep the cost low. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com today. Okay. Um, so let's talk watches again here. Um, 
So, you know, maybe I'm, I'm too new to the watch world. Like, I, I literally just started wearing a, uh, a watch uh, in February on my 40th birthday. It's a, it's a Shinola watch, and I, I, I mentioned sure. that uh, because the founder of Shinola is coming to, um, to the VFA summer celebration. He's, the, he's one of the honorees this year because they're a Detroit company, and, uh, and we're all about at VFA revitalizing uh, American cities, and Detroit is one of them, as, as Randy knows, because his younger brother, Evan, was in Detroit for a while. Um, and to start his own company as well. So, massive digression. That's what I'm good at as a host. Um, I was saying maybe I'm too new to the watch world uh, because I just started watching a watch. But, you know, the... um you know, isn't the individual willing to rent a watch for like $149 to per month to over $1,000 per month wealthy enough to just buy the watch? Yes. And it's important to note that <clears throat> the majority of our clients own one or more of the watches that we offer. The key about 11 James is variety. So fundamentally, you know, our watches, we have four collections. They huddle from average retail value of the watches of five to about $50,000. And, you know, it, again, I go back to variety. There's education, there's community, there's service, there's fun, but it's about variety. For, you know, for starting at $149 a month, you get to wear three different $5,000 watches, four months each, you know, so across the year. So every four months, a new watch. And so theoretically, you're spending across the year $1,800 to wear $15,000 of watches. On the highest end, you'd be spending around $12,000 to wear a quarter million dollars of watches. So... The trade is not in comparison to only one watch. It's in comparison to the comparable variety. But the other key is we have a really robust rewards program. So as a member, you earn points. Think of it like Amex points or airline miles. You get back your watches on time and in good shape, points. When you renew points, when you refer friends or colleagues, more points. Those points equate to either upgrades, complementary rotations, renewals, or cash off a watch. So across three years, you can wear between nine and 18 different watches in a given price point and accrue real thousands of dollars of cash. If you ultimately say, oh, my God, I love that one. I want that one. Already, we offer it at a very competitive price. And you now have cash off of that. So ultimately, for about the same trade as what it would have cost to buy that watch three years prior, you can wear nine to 18 different watches and still take home your favorite and have had the benefit of the variety. Is that? I mean, I don't, I don't, is that is that a good outcome for you? If someone if someone's purchasing a watch, is that better than having them as a, you know, a, a lifetime leased client, so to speak? I mean, it's both. I think across a five year window, we'll see someone be a member for three or more of those years and buy at least one watch because they fell in love. And that's, you know, we're meant to not just be an alternative to ownership. We're meant really as a supplement to ownership. You know, one of the folks use this as a try before they buy in an industry that doesn't allow for it. We have other members who, you know, as, as one member eloquently put it, there are more watches I want to date than ever want to marry. <laughs> and we allow them to have a lot of fun with things that they didn't think were collectible for them or that they didn't per se want to own but seemed like fun for a certain period of time. Um, for others, it's education. You're brand new to the watch space. If you wanted to start owning timepieces of this ilk, five plus thousand dollars, that's an awfully big bet when you don't yet have confidence in right. what you do or don't like. So to spend $150 a month for a year and get that education, and now, a year from now, go and pull the trigger, you're going to feel a lot more confident in your purchase decision. You, you mentioned you know, that it's an industry that doesn't allow you to try things out. I'm curious what the response has been from the industry. And my understanding is the, the watch industry is, like, is, is, is almost monopolistic in, in some ways. Is it's it, fairly a textbook oligopoly. There's right. five businesses that control about 85% of the brands. Right. And so, I mean, have they... 
Do you have any feedback? Are they like, is this, is they perceive this as, as a good thing because you're getting more people into high-end watches? Does it seem like it's a bad thing because, hey, we want to sell more of these things? We don't, I, mean, I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you, you play it out. What, what's their rea- what has their reaction been, if any? The, the only reactions that we've seen are positive, and I would not, you know, these are some unbelievably impressive and successful businesses, and I would not, you know, be so, so presumptive as to put words in their mouth. But if you think about some of the things we're doing, 30%, 30% of our clientele are relatively new to luxury watches. So we're expanding the moat, right? You know, uh, a majority of our clients have said they're interested or late or they're, lit, they're somewhat or very interested in purchasing a piece in the next 12 to 18 months, right? Our average customer, you know, our sweet spot is 25 to 40 years old, but our average customer being 30 to 35 years old, that's an age range that, you know, the the watch luxury watch industry has had an issue with an aging clientele that they've had now for 10, 20, 30 years, but they're getting to be 40 plus years old, 50 plus years old, 60 plus years old. We're lowering that age and providing that education and that enthusiasm. So ultimately, we're not hurting these brands were ultimately really, you know, bringing them a new enthusiastic clientele. And oh, by the way, we're lowering the switching cost. You know, a lot of people grow up, daddy was a Rolex guy, so I'm a Rolex guy, but I'm curious about Panerai or IWC or AP, but it's awfully expensive to test that curiosity. We're allowing people to try out those other brands before they make the plunge and and make a big capital outlay. And so ultimately that's another big issue for the brands that we're making so much easier. So, you know, we view all the top brands as our partners today and some folks that we're going to work ever more closely with going forward. And we're confident they'll feel the same. So Eleven James is, is is you know it's, it's a lifestyle. It's meant to be a lifestyle brand, um, you know, not just selling a watch, but you know, selling an experience. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm curious, like you know, how you're engaging your members beyond their wrists, so to speak, um, yeah. through events and the like. I mean, it starts. You know, we have a a blog with some great content on it, both educational and lifestyle oriented. We have active social media across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and others. We have events in key markets and a regular frequency. Um, And we have a lot of business development partnerships, partners with other like-minded luxury goods and service companies that provide special benefits and other, you know, know, benefits is the best word, other services to our members, you know, as part of, as one of the benefits of being a member. So it's so much more than just the watch. Not to mention between ourselves, you know, our, our concierge team and our executives, there's constant education, there's personal collection assistance, there's help with curation. And so it's really, it's meant to be engaging and addictive. Are there, are there any limita- geographic limitations to this? I mean, can, can you have a, a member in France or Australia or something like that? Currently, we have members in all 50 states in Puerto Rico, but we don't ship watches internationally because we want the watches to spend the majority of time, you know, 94% of the time our watches are on our members' wrists, and we like that number. You want as close to 100% as possible. I don't want watches in transit and in customs. Okay, that makes sense. Customs, I didn't think about that one. Um, but longer term, you know, there's meaningful, a high percentage of our web traffic is coming internationally. There's big demand around the globe, and we will meet that demand. Um, but for now, it's domestic. Do you look around and say to yourself, like, I mean, in the same way you were, you felt this with watches, I mean, are there, are there just other opportunities that you're thinking to yourself, like, I can't believe no one has 11 James-ized XYZ aspect of the luxury market? Are there still niches left that can be, that you feel need to be exploited? I mean, I think, Every time, and I'm not going to remember the famous quote, but like 
every generation there's someone else who says all the good ideas are already taken. Right. And I think that person's certainly not an entrepreneur. There's always an opportunity. Even if you think about it, I would never have thought that shaving cream and razor blades mm. and toothpaste, like, I would, I would never have thought eyeglasses were so perfectly ripe for disruption. And we've been, in the last five or ten years, profoundly proven wrong. So I think that... You know, I've seen, I've been at the smallest of companies and ideas, and I've been at the largest. And I think larger companies, you know, focus and do a lot of what they do so well. But this, there's always a pocket. There's always a corner. There's always an opportunity for someone who's nimble and, and attacking something from a different way. So I think there's endless opportunity out there. And really, any way, any industry you want to point to, it's just a question. It's really just a question of are you passionate enough to stick to it, to to see through whatever vision you have. And what about 11 James? I mean, is 11 James just sticking with, with the watch for now, or it, can you tip your hat? Are there any other accessories that you would, you would bring into the fold? How do, you, how, do you, how do you keep growing the business, growing numbers, growing share per wallet, both? One of... It, I have a two, two-part answer to that. The first is, <laughs> first is, you're talking about $40 billion of luxury watches between new and pre-owned transacting per year globally. So across many millions of people. So we are barely scratching the surface of the opportunity in the watch world alone. But when you become the trusted curator and the active community of someone's you know, passion and life, lifestyle passions and pursuits, I think that opens the door to bringing them other goods and services to the table. So for now, we are, primar- we are exclusively focused on scaling our watch business, but are there other opportunities that we have our eye on longer term? Of course. I, don't, I think the nature of the beast, the nature of the entrepreneur is to always, you know, sometimes your head has to hit the pillow and, dream- and you, have to, you have to have certain dreams. Well, let's talk about your head hitting the pillow. Let's go back to your family. So it's been a couple of years since you started. Mm-hmm. It seems like things are going very well. Um, you know, is, is, do, you have, do you find yourself with more time or less time with your family than you would hope? Like, you know, life of an entrepreneur, is just, it's so all-consuming. Are you, do you feel like, do you feel like you, you're, you have more freedom than you had, more, more free time, let's say, than you had when you were at NetJets? No. I mean, the the number one thing that all entrepreneurs have to figure out, especially if you're also a fam, you know, have a family, is when it's your business, every per- every personnel issue is your issue. Every financial issue is your issue. Like, every client issue is ultimately your issue. And so you can and sometimes feel like you need to be on all the time, 24-7, 365. And the biggest key for me has been learning that... I have a finite amount of time to be with my family, and when I am with them, you know, whether it's an hour or a half hour in a given day or a few hour, or hours on the weekend, to be with them. Don't be in the room, but on your phone or thinking about others, be with them. And so I've learned that I'll never have as much time. I mean, I have a 10-month-old you know, little boy and a 5-year-old daughter, and they're delicious, and I could spend <laughs> endless time with them. But when I, the time I do have or I'm able to allocate right now, whether it's a half hour, an hour, or a few hours, I try and make very special and memorable for everybody so that on a day or days or if I'm traveling or if I can't really be there and present, you know, there's, there's still a relationship there and it's quality. 
Last question. We've got your brother coming on in, in, uh, in ten, 10 minutes here for, for, for another episode. This is the first, the first family, episode, first family uh, series of families. Family day. Exactly. We're, 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 try, we're trying to, I'm serious. I've been trying to have a past guest mother on the show. Um, That's awesome. B. Arthur, who was on the show, was a great guest, uh, um, started a, uh, an online coaching business, and her mother opened a bunch of, of, uh, of um, retirement homes in Houston. I'm like, next time your mother's in town, I want, you, I want her on the show. Because uh, we try to have all sorts of different entrepreneurs. But... Um, you know, say a word about what that's been like. You told me before the show that you've been, you know, you have a really, um, you know, a, you've had a really true brotherly relationship with your much younger brother. Um, you know, have you have you been hands off with him? Have, have you been hands on? I mean, do you see him doing things and you're just like, I'm not going to tell him what to do. I don't want to be overbearing. Or are you engaged with in, with him and his decision making? First of all, it's been awesome. Um, you know, it's it's funny, Evan. You know, and for those you know for those listening. You know, I have an older brother who's two years older, and he was seven. Jared was seventeen. I was fifteen when Evan was born, and you know, Evan has the benefit of having the best of all worlds. You know, Jared's an orthopedic spine surgeon. He's very serious and grown up and rational, and Evan has a lot of the best qualities of Jared. Um, I was a you know business person, consultant, you know, come marketer, come entrepreneur, and Evan's learned a lot of that as well. And he's really taken the best of all worlds, and certainly has the highest potential. But it's funny. I remember when he was in college, and we got him an internship at Goldman Sachs, and Jared and I were high fiving and saying, "Our work is done here. We got him into Goldman." <laughs> um, and at the end of the summer, he's like, "I don't want to do that. I want to be an entrepreneur." I'm like, "Oh no, we got you into Goldman, dude. Do the Goldman thing. Trust me." And he he didn't. He came by his entrepreneurial passions honestly. So, you know, my next best step was to try and channel him to VFA, and he was thankfully accepted as a fellow and had a great two years in Detroit, and it led him to now start his own business and with a great partner in Philadelphia. So, it's been really there's a lot of pride. If I'm entitled as a brother to be prideful, there's a ton of pride in seeing him do that and seeing him learn and grow and have challenges and overcome them. Um, for me, my biggest frustration, which isn't that different from my frustration with my immediate family, my, you know, my wife and kids, is I want to be more helpful. I wish I had more time to allocate, um, to give of my network, give of my experience, and I can't. You know, Eleven James is still at a very pivotal moment where it needs too much time and so much attention that I try as best I can, and I hope to be meaningful in, the, in whatever contributions I do make. But no, I mean, I, I'm helpful, but his success with this is all his because I, I don't have the bandwidth to really be a meaningful part of it. So fantastic place to end with you giving full credit to your brother. I, I, I think uh, with my brothers, uh, there's never any sharing of credit. Uh, so I think that, that, <laughs> that's a, a great place to end. Uh, we'll also have to make sure that because because we're talking about your brother in this context, and I haven't interviewed him yet, that that, that, that the shows you know appear in order. You first, then him. Uh, yes. And if, be and if he trashes me, then yeah. I take back my compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being here for for sharing this this the story of your your, your entire story, but in particular, um, you know the story of eleven. James, if you want to do uh, do the shout out to all the various Instagrams and and Facebook pages, I mean it's fairly straightforward. Eleven James. Yeah, I mean at eleven James and at eleven James, will you'll we'll find us in, in all the different you know social media sites and the website. And you know whether at any age, if you have any curiosity at all about luxury watches, um, we'd love to help. Fantastic.
How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.